Whether you're an aspiring music business professional or a seasoned vet, every Thursday, the Music Business Podcast brings you the trends and tactics from some of the world's most innovative minds in music. I'm artist manager and consultant, Jordan Williams. And I'm Sam Heisel, co-founder of the music marketing and content production agency, Knox. We're not teachers. We're entertainment industry professionals, drinkers, wannabe comedians, and most importantly, fans. Welcome to the show. What's good, Sam? How you doing, man? We out here. For those who can't see, I got the virtual background of New York behind me. I haven't been in New York in a little bit, and I miss it, so that's how I'm feeling today. Shout out to New York City. Shout out to everybody that's still there and everything. Miss you. Love you. Hope to be back soon. Um, Speaking of New York and New York University, um, we got somebody on the podcast today. I originally met during my time at NYU. She's a, a great person, funny person. Um, and very driven and ambitious, and I'm glad that we we finally got her on the podcast, Jenny Kaufman. Um, I met her. I met her as a music business major at NYU, um, and it's you know I'm glad that we got her on today because we go over something. Um, she's head of digital strategy at Terra Bird Media, and we go over something that we haven't gone over yet on the podcast, which is playlisting. Finally, I get so many questions about. How do I get on a playlist? What do I have to do? And today we answer a lot of those questions. Before you even get into it, I'm going to say we got gems, man. We got gems. Jen, Jennifer gets really into tactical advice that you guys can take away from this to get on playlists. Uh, we make some really good comparisons. The thing that really made the spark, that really sparked a light bulb in my head was comparing it to the publicity and how they overlap a lot. Um, we get into how to contact people who run playlists. That was the number one problem for me and my previous job was how do we even get to these people? They never, they never post their names. They never, it's like they're hidden. We get to talk about that too. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm just really excited to, to get into it. What'd you think, Sam? Yeah, I thought it was super dope. I think even if you, I think she gives some really tactical advice on how to use the Spotify for artists playlist pitching tool. Whenever you're distributing music via Spotify as an independent artist, you're able to leverage that tool to increase the chance that one of your songs is picked up by a playlist. And she gives some really, really tactical advice on how to make it happen. I also think too, it's like, yeah, she works at like a label services and like marketing company, but a lot of the services she provides, it's like the same reason you want to sign with a record label. So it's like, you're getting mm-hmm. the inside view at, one of the most important aspects of a record label from somebody that's doing it not as a record label. And I think as uh, we all strive to continue to build more leverage, um, being able to partner with different companies like this and, and even just deploy a lot of her tactics so that you can go about building your own fan base and community, super valuable. So uh, one last note, if you haven't already, really want to encourage you to check out our, our Patreon, uh, getting it popping over in Discord. Um, our Patreon is essentially a way in which you, if you're an avid listener of the Music Business Podcast and or just want to find ways to network with other people in the industry and dive deeper in any specific topics or questions, you can take part and do just that. You can also submit questions for guests in upcoming episodes. So to check it out and learn more, just go to musicbusinesspodcast.com slash community. I'm going to leave it at that. Without any further ado, let's get into it. Let's do it. What's up, Jenny? How you doing? Hey, I'm hanging in there. Nice weather, which is good. Got my windows open. Yeah, I like took a bike ride today. I was like, wow, it's like actually becoming summer outside. I know. My birthday is next week, so I'm like pretty pumped. Oh, uh, nice. I have nice weather come in and like some birthday energy, like getting my Gemini spirit. Wait, what day is your birthday? Just out of curiosity. Next Thursday. So June 4th. Next Thursday. Word. Sweet, sweet. Awesome. Well, um, you're in New York right now, right? I am in New York. Yeah. I'm actually from New York state, not from the city, but I'm from there. So I pretty much never, never leave. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, um, your, your industry is different. I mean, it's interesting because like, I'm, I imagine you can do a lot of the work that you have to do at home the same way you would in the office, uh, for the most part. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I I work at a company called Terrorbird Digital, which called Terrorbird. I am in Terrorbird Digital. (laughs) Um, And yeah, a lot of our work is remote um, or can be done remotely um, in the sense that we work with clients who, you know, aren't in the room with us. And we also are pitching 
and working with partners that obviously aren't in our office. So a lot of our stuff is, is online communication anyway. Um, but we also had a lot of systems in place that enabled us to work remotely. So we use Slack a lot. We're like a big Slack company um, and I'm a big proponent of it. It makes it so easy just to like communicate with all of our offices. Um, and then, yeah, now it's become a little bit more essential because we're not in the same office anymore. Right. Um, right. But yeah, it's it's been very manageable. It's been very manageable for sure. Sweet. And then for those who don't know, I kind of think a Terrorbird is like a Swiss army knife in terms of just the amount of um, services that you guys offer. But how would, for the people who don't know, how would you introduce Terrorbird to the, to the audience? Yeah, absolutely. So Terrorbird uh, has been around for quite a while, uh, and it was started by our two co-founders, Gio and Jess. Um, and our company offers a variety of services, right? Uh, artist music marketing services. Um, so we can be hired either by the artist directly or the artist team, or we can be hired by their record label or someone else. So uh, we work with a variety, a variety of artists uh, spanning a bunch of genres, uh, in a variety of verticals, right? So we offer a radio service, which includes uh, college radio and also non-common specialty radio. We have a traditional press team uh, that hire, you know, that works with online outlets, pitching for premieres and stuff like that. We also have a sync licensing team uh, pitching for placements in film and TV. We have a publishing department, <laughs> uh, so doing publishing deals. And we also have an originals department so a team that actually works with composers and artists and procures uh, blur, you know, uh, like blurbs or uh, briefs, if you will, from from uh, brands to create original compositions for their needs. So we have a lot of departments, uh, and that's grown over time. So digital is one of the younger ones, and it's just two years old now. Um, Amazing. So when yeah. it comes to the the obviously we'll start to peel back different elements of the, the approach on a more granular level. But when you kind of digital, obviously like broad word topic, lots of different like tactics yes. in digital, but like when you're supporting mark, uh, marketing artists and records in the digital front, like what are your general areas of focus? Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I actually come from a label background. So mm. when I was in college, I was interning at beggars group and working with Excel uh, I had worked at Fader Label for a while, which now has Claro and all these other kinds of artists. But when I was there, it was like Matt and Kim and things like that. Uh, and then for the first few years of my career, when I got out of college, I was working at Glass Note Records um, mm -hmm. and was also in their digital department. And so I sort of learned what digital was in a really traditional way, working at a record label. And then coming to Terrorbird, that story was sort of a like, how do I spin digital on its head? What do I actually want to be doing? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, to, an to answer your direct question, digital at Terrorbird is pitching digital stores and streaming services for consideration in their editorial. So what that really means is all of these platforms uh, have a variety of things that they showcase, right? Whether it be playlists, which is the most common thing, but also, you know, sliders and marketing opportunities and a bunch of different things that they are programming on a regular basis. And so right. it's my job to pitch people at those platforms uh, on records that I'm working and present them in the best possible way. Very similar to like a traditional publicist would do for an online outlet. Mm. You know, I create my own kind of press release of, of my own uh, right. and service it to all of those partners. So to your point, digital strategy and being ahead of digital strategy is a bit nebulous yeah, but yeah. i like to think of our offering is like pretty concrete it's like this right. is the thing that we do you know in the future i'd love to do more digital marketing type things so mm -hmm. you know much more of that is direct to fan right so it's like email lists or websites or social um but for now we really started focusing on you know what i would like to call dsp pitching which is like the industry standard term is dsp mm -hmm. for all those stores like we really focus on that offering partially because we really love it and partially because our clients really love it. So it's kind of like, you know, that's been an interesting part of it is figuring out where the demand is going to be and sort of catering our service to that. Um, but when I was at Glass Note, you know, to recap quickly, I did more traditional digital, digital stuff. So I was the director of digital marketing and I also uh, was our head of global production, mm -hmm. meaning I distributed all of the products, all of the audio and video around the world and was like managing those systems, those content management systems. So Amazing. I've kind of like touched everything awesome. that I've done. 
you know, I've touched everything in digital, but uh, now it's much more pitching digital stores. What are the uh, similarities now that you brought it up between a publicist and uh, your job role? They are similar. Um, you know, I think part of it, one of the hardest parts of the job is managing your Rolodex, right? And like understanding mm-hmm. who the right people are to be talking to with these platforms. You know, mm-hmm. you don't want to be wasting someone else's time as much as they don't want to be wasting your time. So it's a matter of understanding who the right people are, if there's new people to be talking to, all of those things. I find that to be really similar. You know, another element that I find to be really similar is like, you do need to be a people person. You do want to get to know these people. You have to like building relationships and knowing their tastes and understanding what is this person actually like? Like, mm-hmm. you know, what, what kind of music are they into? Um, and I think that part is all really similar. You know, the other thing that's similar is you have to understand the offerings that the platform you're pitching has, right? So like NPR has All Songs Considered. NPR also has Tiny Desk. NPR has all these things. And it's your job as a publicist to understand what's being offered and also where does my artist fit? you know, in this Mm -hmm. echelon of stuff. And so it's my job also to understand those offerings. You know, Spotify had, you know, used to do a lot of fan first events where they would work with your top listeners and invite them out to to an event. Or Mm -hmm. they, you know, have their single sessions. You know, it's my job if a client comes to me and says, I want a single session to say to them either, I think that's a good target for you or I don't think that that makes any sense for where you're at. So it's honestly incredibly similar. The The main difference I find is in the data portion, right? So when I'm talking to artists or talking to clients or, you know, record labels, whoever, um, there's a lot of data that informs my thinking. So it informs mm. where I'm going to pitch and how I'm going to pitch and all of that. But also that data informs the feedback I give to my clients. So, you know, they might say to me, hey, Jenny, I really want more Spotify playlists. And then I can go and say, hey, 56% of your plays, your total plays are coming from Spotify editorial, over Mm -hmm. half. So I'm not sure that going back in is the best idea. But, you know, publicists, you know, don't have that advantage. You know, it's really based on their thinking and their expertise. And obviously, so so is my job. But there is an element of data that I find changes those kinds of conversations. Um, how does it differ specifically with getting the contacts that you need to do those pitches? I know, I know for a lot of, um, websites, blogs, magazines, and things, the name of the writer is usually on the article. Like you can, then you can kind of like reverse engineer, okay, this is their name or, or they have some sort of moniker that you know of that you can go online and kind of check. And that's usually what their Twitter name is or Instagram name is. But a question that I get a lot is obviously it's a big question. How do you get on these playlists, right? But the first thing you have to do is to know who you're pitching to and how to pitch to them. What, how do you even join a network where, you know, some of the people in it, you know, may work at Tidal or Spotify or Apple Music if it's almost as if they don't want to be found, you know? Yeah, I think that that is a really good question and it's one I get asked a lot. <laughs> the, the simplest way to put it, right, is if it was easy, like I wouldn't have a job. Right. So I don't mean to like make it so plain and simple, but I do think that there is a reason that, you know, record labels still do have this real presence at DSPs or that people like me are, you know, being hired and being allowed to work these records. It is because to your point, there is a wall and there is a bit of a gatekeeping system. Um, the, The best way to put it is that I don't think I could have had this job if I hadn't worked at a record label. Right. Mm. So I think that I was really able to build my Rolodex, but also trust with people, right? That like, hey, I'm trustworthy. I'm not going to send you dumb stuff. I'm not going to waste your time uh, through that role. And then when I came to Terrorbird, I was able to move that Rolodex over. And I was able to say to people, hey, I'm going to be pitching you different kinds of music, but it's all going to be stuff that I love and that I curate. And that, mm-hmm. that's the main difference, I think, between my job at Glassnote and here is when you work at a record label, there is a roster and you're, you're stuck with that roster. Whereas at Terrorbird, because we're a marketing company, uh, we're a bit more nimble with who we work with and we have a bit more choice and agency in those decisions. Um, so to your point, even though I was sort of starting fresh, I, I wasn't starting fresh in the sense that like my whole Rolodex came with me. Mm-hmm. I will say in terms of finding people and, and making that search, you know, these people do exist online. They're not uh, like non-existent people. Right. 
And if you do enough digging and you do enough searching, you will find out their names. But once again, like you said, their email isn't just listed there. (laughs) And, you know, the thing I will say to people is it's great if you find an email contact. It's great if you find something, but they're probably not going to just open an email from a random person. They're Mm -hmm. getting tons and tons of email every day. So, you know, it's your job to figure out how do you stand out? How do you build the right team that enables you to get in touch with those people? And unfortunately, I do feel that it is still a bit of a traditional system where you do need a distributor or you do need a label or someone on your team who has those direct relationships, whether that be a manager or an agent. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons why I was inspired to make this service. I was Mm -hmm. like, I love indie music and I love indie artists and I, I love working with things that maybe people don't know about. And how do I do that? How do I still do digital and still do the stuff that I love? but promote something that might be a little bit off center or something that someone might not have heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of while I was conceptualizing that idea, uh, I found Terrorbird and Terrorbird found me. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't apply to any other jobs, to be honest with you. I wasn't like, I'm going <laughs> to go like look for other things. I was like, how do I do the thing I want to do? And Terrorbird was like, we'll give you the bandwidth uh, and the freedom to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's wow, kind of awesome. why it happened. That's super yeah. cool. Awesome. I also feel like what you're doing too with Terrorbird and just a lot of the services that you provide as well as the organization as a whole are nice for artists and managers that want to own the their own rights to their music and maybe not sign with a label, but still be able to benefit from a lot of the different marketing services that a label would typically provide. Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, we've had the privilege of working with a bunch of artists too who have ultimately gone on to sign deals, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, I worked with this artist, Cave Town, with my friend, Zach Zarillo, who is a manager who I happened to meet at Senior Prom. Great mm-hmm. story. <laughs> um, yeah, right? Like, the world is weird. Um, and ultimately, they ended up signing with Sire, signing with Warner. But when I was working with them, they were independent, I believe, going through CD Baby at the time. And yeah, it's just a way of... It, it just provides so much more freedom, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, I think one of the things, obviously, that happens in a traditional distributor model is hey, we'll distribute your music and we take a percentage cut, right? Like I don't take a percentage of anyone's music. It's (laughs) a flat fee that you pay me. Like I don't don't subscribe to that. And I also don't think that it creates the best working relationship given the stuff that I do. It's like, look, if I happen to blow up this song and you make so much money, like, great, you'll come back and we'll work together (laughs) again. And we're all happy. And like, you know, that's always my, my mentality. So, uh, yeah, I do think that it it is a great tool for independent artists. And I, I think, to be, to be frank with you, I saw that reality coming. I wasn't like, you know, really on the cutting edge. It wasn't like I've been here, I've been mm-hmm. here two years. But when I was at a record label, there'd be stuff that I would want to sign or I'd be excited about. Mm-hmm. And it just wouldn't happen. Or it'd be too slow. Or the artists would stay independent. You know, mm-hmm. artists like Rex Orange County and things like that were still happening when I was at Glass Note. Right. And you know, ultimately they signed a deal, but during, for many, many years, so many of these artists just aren't signing. And I was just like, how do I work with stuff that's exciting me? How do I work with stuff that is coming up? And how do I provide a value add that's compelling? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and yeah, artists, you know, artists like Cape Town, like I said, were through digital, but we also have worked with bands like Skeggs who were like this great international Australian band who had like a number one album in the country. Like Number two was Paul McCartney, and number one was this band Skeggs that you don't know about. Mm-hmm. And they ultimately, as a result of the album that we worked together, signed a deal with Loma Vista in the States and are now doing great stuff on DSPs. You know, it's just like getting those first ads for people can really get the ball rolling to also get a better deal, right? Mm-hmm. So if they see, oh, the indie editor is like all in on this artist, you have a lot more leverage when you go to sign with a Warner or, right. you know, Loma Vista or whoever. So I think that's an interesting element of it too, is how do you get the ball rolling and get leverage on your campaign before going into those conversations? For sure. With that said too, I know a topic that everybody loves to talk about is like the the rise of like, I don't need a label. When in reality, (laughs) I think it's like a lot of people that work in the industry. I mean, there's no doubt there's like deal, record label deals that can sometimes exploit artists, but in other instances, like, some very knowledgeable managers that I've spoken to have even said, it's like, I just don't think you can literally make like a global star without a major record label. Um, I know there's like fringe, very few fringe cases where that prove the contrary, but 
that's by no means the norm. From somebody's perspective, I mean, if I try and distill the most valuable aspects of a label, I mean, you have the funding. There's no denying that right. the funding is huge. Then there's the the marketing, and I think it's all these different things that you're. I mean, you're alluding to, and lots of just the same kind of when you rattled off the list of like the services that Terabird provides. It's also like the list of like label marketing services, labels provide. Right. I guess the last bucket may be this kind of like A and R component, really not only right. a kind of matchmaking between artists, producers, engineers to really help with the, the quality of the, the finished product. Um, from your perspective, like what? When, when does it make sense to sign with the label? Does it even make sense to sign with the label? Like you mentioned a couple of stories where some artists did as it kind of used some of the success they had with you as a stepping stone to sign with the label. But for managers that are evaluating whether or not they need managers and artists that are evaluating whether or not they should sign with the label, like from your perspective as somebody that like does a lot of what a label does, like when should they or should they not and why or why not? Totally. Yeah. I mean, and it's funny because I come from a label, right? So like that's yeah, my yeah. background and I work here. So I get to have like kind of some perspective in every bucket. Mm-hmm. You know, the the first thing I always say to people, because a lot of people ask me like, when's the right time to get a manager? When's the right time yeah. to get a label? Like for me, <laughs> it comes down to like, does the person care? Do you feel mm-hmm. these people are super pumped about what you're doing? You know, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I live with a producer. We, he's my roommate. He's my best friend. Uh, and someone just offered him a record deal, right? Someone just recently was like, here's a record deal for you. But we've only talked to one person. They haven't brought in anyone else on the team. <laughs> and no one seems that engaged about the project. You know, I'd love to hear, what are your plans? Where do you see this in a few years? Where do you see this in five years? What excites you the most about this project, mm-hmm. Right. If you're not getting that energy, it's probably not the right time to sign or not the right Mm -hmm. people, you know, or not the right people, not the right opportunity. Um, And I judge a lot based on like vibe and energy, which maybe Mm -hmm. sounds corny to some people. Obviously, don't let that override like deal terms. Like don't don't get great (laughs) vibe and then bad deal terms. Like definitely have a lawyer and definitely look over what you're going to do. But I think that that is a good rule of thumb, right? They have to be energetic. I do think, though, that good deal terms and bad vibe, though, can be a real deal breaker. So good vibe, bad deal terms. Yeah, okay, let's make sure the deal terms are better. But even great terms, horrible vibe can like definitely ruin a deal, I think. That's kind of what I'm saying. Like vibe first, vibe first. Because if the vibe is bad, you'll find someone else you vibe with. You will find... Vibe check. Vibe check. (laughs) Listen, vibe check. That's what I'm saying. Like, you can't... You know, music is supposed to be about passion. That's sort of what we're all supposed to be doing in this industry. Like, if you don't feel like people are stoked about what you're doing, then it's the wrong team. So I feel that same way about labels, right? If you're not getting people who are actually pumped, then, like, that's wrong, right? That's, Mm. That's step one. You know, step two, to your point, if what if everyone's pumped and now you're just deciding if it's what you want? Like, I think it does depend on your plan and your trajectory and your team, right? I I think that one of the best parts of a label is having experienced bodies, you know, experienced people in the room, right? People who have launched other things, right? So when I was at Glassnote, we had Childish Gambino at the time. So, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to say to people like, oh, I've worked a Childish Gambino record or, oh, I've worked a Mumford & Sons record. And they know that you've worked records at that scale and that you're prepared to do that. So I can help you hopefully grow to that place. Right. Mm. And there's, there's an understanding of these people are prepared and excited to push my career. So the question is, when do you need a larger team and more bodies in the room? It really depends on, I think, the crux in your career of where you're at and where you see yourself going. And, and is there a lot of momentum happening right now independently? Maybe you need something. Maybe you don't. That's kind of up in the air. Have you found a really excited team who are really pumped to invest in you, even if you have like minimal momentum, but good deal terms? Like maybe that will actually work because maybe they'll help you get that little mm-hmm. spark that you need. I, I know it sounds so nebulous, but I really think it is a case-by-case conversation. Um, you know, like for Skeggs, for example, the, that Australian band, they're huge in Australia and they had a label there, but they weren't huge rest of the world just yet. So, you know, for them, it was like, why don't we build a little bit rest of world to then get a deal in those markets? And I think that that's very intelligent. If you have all this momentum in another country, hopefully you can leverage that, you know, somewhere else. And that's what we did, you know. Um, 
they were a band who never had us playlisting and we got them on all new indie ultimate indie you know undercurrents like multiple playlists just by saying like look at this data look how big this band is in other countries can't we funnel that here you know so i think I think it's a complicated question, but I think I've addressed it, right? I think labels are great. I love record labels. I work with tons of them. Uh, mm. I work, you know, regularly with Car Park Records, who have Toro y Moi and a bunch of other great artists. I work regularly with Polyvinyl Records, uh, you know, just did Jeff Rosenstock with them. I work Jason with them. Uh, I have worked with, you know, labels like Double Double Whammy on Hatchie or Lamo on Shannon Moser. Like, the list goes on and on, and the size of these artists and labels goes on and on. I love my labels. I think that they're great. It just, mm. you know, it needs to be the right time. It needs to be the right time. Yeah, I get, I get that question a good amount too. And um, honestly, I don't really say too much different every time because it's kind of it's kind of different for each person, like you're saying. But one thing that I do I always ask, and it's obviously it seems obvious, but when it makes sense, sign when it makes sense to. And then they're like, well, when does it make sense to? And then I ask them just more and more questions to get them to think about their own career. Like at that point, I'm like, not even really giving them advice. Like someone hit me the other day and was like, hey, I got this amount in advance. Does it make sense to to get this amount in this advance? Well, I was like, well, what are you going to use the advance for? What do the other deal terms look like? So it's all kind of like putting everything in context. And I think that's still... I think that's still valid for when you should sign to a label in the first place. It's like, given the contextual situation of where you are, do you think that there is a proper value exchange between you and a label at this moment? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, yeah, where, where are you sitting? Where are they sitting? Right. And also what's their vision, right? If someone offers you a big advance and basically says, we want you to have a hit in the next six months, do you have a hit? (laughs) Are you ready to (laughs) make Like, cause to me, it's like, are our expectations in the same place? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I will say, uh, and this is something I'm very passionate about with, with record labels and signing is I always tell people to go into the office and see how many people, uh, look like them that work there. So, you know, for example, you basically is the office diverse. Do they have a diverse representation of people? Do they have a diverse cross-section of people? Because ultimately music is being marketed to a very large cross-section of people, Mm -hmm. you know, and if they only have one type of person in the room with one kind of life experience, how are they going to market to all different kinds of people? So, you know, I find that to be an increasingly important question as people sign, like, do you feel represented by these people? Do you feel that they understand you and your audience and your music uh, and not just have, you know, big names with tons of sales? Like we, we need to see that change from the inside out. And I think that that's something I keep advocating for. You know, when I came to Terrorbird, uh, we have uh, a staff that is majority uh, women or female identifying uh, people. Uh, we also have non-binary people on our staff. We also have men on our staff, you know, but I like to be part of a community that reflects the values that I have. Um, and it's very cool to see at least for me, to see women being empowered in our office. Um, right. So that's been really special. Uh, and I, and I feel it's awesome. rare in music. You know, I find that it's rare. So finding, you know, companies that align with your values, I think is really important too. Right, right. Um, so I, I'll tell a quick story and then a question at the end of the story. <laughs> Last year, one of our artists um, at the company that I previously worked for, EQT, was putting out an album. And um, I was there. The company co-founder asked, "What playlist should we pitch to?" And like, I just off the bat was like, "Rap Radar," because like, why not? And then he gave me, he sent me this long speech about how it doesn't make sense and how we should be thinking about it, everything strategically, and what's the strategy behind pitching to the biggest rap playlist for an artist that may not actually fit. So when you get artists that come to you and they're like, "Jenny, man, I'm trying to be on." so-and-so today or for this next single, what are some of the things that you do to justify um, the playlist that makes sense? What do you tell them? And kind of like, what, how, does, how do you build momentum in order to, to get to those playlists? Totally. No, that's a, great, that's a great question. And it is something I deal with literally all the time. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I think that we're also currently living in this like new music Friday paradox still yeah. of like, but why am I not on music Friday? And the, the thing I, I stress a lot to people is like these, there's, there's a lot of data in these decisions, mm-hmm. right? So for example, you know, you might not be getting to new music Friday or, you know, even after single three or four, because 
maybe there just isn't that momentum on platform. Maybe it's not as big as we were hoping, or maybe sonically they don't feel it would perform, or maybe you've had a, you know, a high skip rate on these songs. And for those who don't know, a skip rate basically is, you know, how fast is a song being skipped in a playlist? You know, so it's a measure, a quantifiable measure of is my song being skipped over when someone's, you know, listening through. So mm-hmm. if you've had a high skip rate on other playlists, they may not consider feeding you into a new music Friday, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, the other thing that I I said to a client once that I thought was really good, which we were talking about New Music Friday, and it was an indie artist, like a proper indie artist, you know, lots of pitchfork love, lots of NPR love, stuff like that. And we didn't get you know, New Music Friday, but we got All New Indie, which is the flagship or the main New Music playlist for indie. And I was saying to them, I was like, New Music Friday is like Billboard. And, you know, All New Indie is like Pitchfork. So (laughs) the people who need to know about this record, your target audience, your core demo, is All New Indie. It is Pitchfork. And if you had an article up on Billboard, people might see it, right? A lot of people might see it. But if they don't know who you are, they're not going to click on it. So it doesn't matter that you had this headline in Billboard, though it's a good look, obviously. If the people don't click through, then it's not going to convert people to becoming fans. So what's more important to you? Do you want fans and streams that convert people to save the song and meaningful engagement? Or do you want just eyeballs for the sake of eyeballs, but we could get a high skip rate and we could get, you know, low engagement? I'd prefer the targeted audience and I'd prefer all new indie because that's where your fans actually are, you know? And there's a lot of those kinds of conversations I have a lot of just sort of demonstrating like, here's who your fans actually are versus here's who you want your fans to be. And -hmm. those are two different conversations and we can try to grow into that other sphere. But right now, this is your core demo. This is where you're doing well. And we need to hit those benchmarks to really get there. Um, and to answer your question more directly about, well, how do we grow, right? How do we get to an all new indie or how do we get to, to those things? You know, I think that the platforms are looking at on-platform data and off-platform data. So like I've been, you know, speaking to, there's skip rates, there's save rates, there's streams, obviously, uh, there's velocity that, you know, includes the viral charts. So how fast is a song being streamed or growing? Um, And they're looking at all of that data and they're looking to see what the engagement is like, but they're also looking at off-platform support. So are you getting press? Are you touring? Uh, Have you toured in the past? Uh, You know, have other artists been tweeting about your song? Have they been sharing it? Um, Those are all things that I use as leverage when talking to playlist editors. Um, and they're sort of what I would call traditional marketing drivers in, you know, in terms of industry jargon, you know, is Vinyl Me Please going to do a pressing? Is so-and-so going to do a live stream? So I think that, you know, people want to believe that playlisting is just this magic bullet, but really I do think that most times they're accounting for all those other factors and really taking those into heavy consideration when they're considering, you know, playlisting something. Um, is there a time when you just shouldn't pitch for playlists? Like, you know, an artist comes to you and the song maybe came out a month ago and it's like, yo, maybe now's not the time to pitch this song. It's over with. Or if an artist, you feel like the song doesn't make sense to pitch or it's too early in their career for what they're expecting. Or is there any time when you're just like, nah, I don't think it really makes sense to pitch right now. Yeah. Uh, I do have to say things like that often. (laughs) Uh, I definitely don't pitch records that are already out. So if it's Uh already come out, I don't work it. So I only work new releases uh, in large part because I don't feel like streaming has a great system to promote catalog right now. They don't really have a great system to go back in on records, especially because, you know, with the advent of the Spotify for artists pitching tool, you can only submit new releases. So, Mm -hmm. and we do use that tool as part of our pitch process at Terrorbird. So it becomes a much harder sell to go back in on something that has basically filtered through their system already. So right. we don't work old records for that reason. Um, you know, sometimes we will take a shot on a band that really has like no press, no team, <laughs> but we think it's awesome. So like all yeah. work stuff that I think is rad, even if none of that's in place, just because I'm pumped about it. Um, but those cases are, are rare. Uh, they're few and far between. Uh, we try to, 
you know, I try to always keep grounded expectations of my clients. I don't want them to ever think they're going to get the world and then they don't get it. So Mm -hmm. when I do take those clients where I feel it's a bit more of a risk, I try to communicate that ahead of time. I say, hey, I'm happy to work this and I'm passionate about it, but here are the risks associated with it. So maybe Mm -hmm. you don't have a publicist or maybe you don't have, you know, a radio team or you don't have any other systems in place to promote this record. Uh, I'm still happy to do it, but it's just a matter of me communicating and being upfront with people, you know? Right. I, I'm not someone who just like takes people's money and it's like, cool, thanks. Um, I try to be transparent uh, and real. So that's always yeah, Especially with flat fees. A lot, of, a lot of businesses do that, especially, especially when they get flat fees. 100%. And, you know, and that's, that was something I wanted to avoid. I made an, an mm-hmm. intention of avoiding with my clients is, you know, always saying like, look, this could go rad or this could go, okay, but like we're gonna, and, you know, but but I also think that the main point in that, and it's a, you know sort of a terrible policy, but obviously it's an ideology that I subscribe to. Just be honest with people. If you're like, hey, this didn't go as good as I wanted, you can say that. I've said that. <laughs> hey, I wish this had gone better, because also that instills trust. That mm-hmm. makes someone trust you. So you're not lying to them being like, this campaign was the best ever, and like it was not. It was not the best campaign ever. <laughs> you know, like. Being, you know, you know, I like to think I'm like a real and honest person, but I think being real and honest in business is the right thing to do. And also, unfortunately, in our industry, happens to be viewed as like a refreshing mindset. I know. That's like so weird. Like that, that's happened to me too, where somebody has said, you know, you're an honest person, Jordan, and that's rare. And I'm like, what? (laughs) What are you talking about? Yeah, who are you hanging out with? (laughs) Yeah. What? No, I mean, it's it's one of those things where like, you know, it's one of the reasons why I really like where I work, but I do have concerns about other verticals of the industry because I think that there is a bit of a culture of like, don't tell the manager the truth. Don't tell the client Uh the truth. Don't Uh tell the artist the truth. And I'm like, why not? They deserve to know because then if on the back end, they're super disappointed, but you didn't tell them at, you know, steps A, B, and C that it wasn't going great they're going to get to step Z and go, why didn't it go great? Mm-hmm. You know, I'd rather we all be on the same page or, or we agree on a new strategy. You know, we might say, Hey, we're not getting the support tour we wanted, but let's throw our energy into this thing for now. Right. Like, you know, one of the beauties of our industries, I think we can pivot. And I think that we do have a lot of things that we use to promote artists and we can re-strategize and rejigger our focuses but if we don't all agree that that needs to happen, then that won't happen. And those right. artists will suffer for it. So, right. you know, it's one of the reasons why I really enjoy this role and I enjoy being part of so many different teams and getting to be so collaborative is because, you know, I like being able to help people. I like being able to make a meaningful impact, but also, you know, I like being flexible and being part of a team, you know, right. that, that I find to be really rewarding. Uh, Really, that's really how I find it. That's super cool. Totally agree. Yeah. What you you kind of quickly mentioned the Spotify for artists pitching tool and how that's a standard part of your pitching process. I think I yeah. uh, would love to just dive into some best practices there because I think a lot of the I mean obviously there's a range of listeners on our podcast um, from people that are working at major labels and as well as like emerging artists and managers and I think them being able to know how a professional goes about really using the, the tool. And I mean, I know you get an opportunity to kind of like, what, like three to five sentence blurb around why this song is important. Can you just talk about the tool and different things you're conscious of when pitching and, and using the, the tool in order to try and like increase the likelihood that Spotify actually is like picks up a song? Yes, I definitely can. Um, one of my favorite conversations in general too is about like genre. So this this conversation will play very well into the genre conversation. Nice. You know, I have a lot of conversations with clients who will be like, you know, I think my song is indie pop or I think my song is indie folk. And I like d- wholeheartedly disagree with like their subgenre specification, right? You know, I think the main thing, the main advantage I have in my job uh, and that many people who do a similar job also have is, we're looking at these platforms like literally every day. We're looking at them <laughs> all the time. It is our professional job. So we 
know all of these genre verticals really well, and we know what kind of songs have landed in these verticals, right? You might say to me, well, my song is a rock song, but I might tell you, the rock editor really programs stuff like 21 Pilots. Your song actually doesn't sound like 21 Pilots. This might be more of a punk editorial thing, even though to you, this is a rock song. So it's learning those genres. It's not just thinking, what does my music sound like to me? It's what does my music sound like to Spotify, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you're using the tool, the goal is to get it to the person who is most likely to playlist the song. So the goal isn't like, what do I think this music is? The goal is, what do they think it is? So you might ask me, well, how do I figure that out, right? How do I know what it is? If you think your song is indie pop, go to the indie pop playlist and listen to it and say, does my song sound like these? Mm-hmm. Right. Because it, it might not, or it might sound exactly like it. Um, so I think that is the main tip I would give for the first part of the form is really know your genres, understand what it's like on platform. Go listen. If you don't know, go mm-hmm. listen, go listen. If you're unsure, you know, many songs, especially in this day and age and my favorite songs are kind of cross genre songs. They don't sound like one song, you know, like I love your one genre rather, you know, I, I love playlists like Lorem. I love, and Pollen, you know, I love playlists that don't, you know, just do one thing. So mm-hmm. it's okay to have a song that might fit in multiple genres, but go listen to the standard playlists of those genres and make informed decisions. Um, and then, you know, I would also use related artists if yours have populated as a means for determining that. So when I, you know, have a conversation with a client about, uh, I actually really think that your genre is more this than that. I will use related artists as a resource for that because if mm-hmm. those related artists have been playlisted in some of the play, you know, in some of the genres that I believe this artist belongs in, then that's leverage for me to explain that to a client. So if you're an artist, look at your related artists and see where they've been playlisted if they have been uh, and what genres they've been in, right? Because related artists is algorithmic. Fans also like is now what it's called. Um, it's algorithmic. So the algorithm believes that you're like those things and the editors have put those people in those playlists. So it's a really good barometer for where to go next. And then to your point in terms of that blurb where it's like, you know, write three to five sentences. uh, I try to pack as much information in there as I can with context about the artist. So, you know, I think a lot of people use that blurb to just write about the song, which I think Mm -hmm. that people should do. They should include some information about the song, you know, if someone notable produced it, or if you want to write a sentence about what it's about, like go for it, you know, include some personal anecdotes. But I also include like upcoming touring information, touring history, current press, press history, uh, things of that nature, uh, just so that Spotify and the people who are looking at these forms can understand, we're not just asking you for playlists, we're also doing all of these other things to position this artist for success. So I would encourage artists not to just use it as a place to sort of like, word vomit about your art, but also include some notable highlights, stats, anything like that, if you have that going on. But if, if you don't have anything like that and you're just beginning, yeah, just put whatever you want in it, be expressive uh, and be excited, you know? Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense and super tactical and helpful. So really appreciate that. Um, yeah, totally. With that said, uh, you, you mentioned this also early in the episode and I kind of want to circle back and you even alluded to it again in, in this answer, but you mentioned staying up to date on the different products available at some of these different digital partners. So you just mentioned kind of how Spotify changed it from like similar artists to fans also like. I personally just this past week learned in a fun way that YouTube has this artist on the rise program where they feature artist songs on their trending page because one of the videos we made for an artist got featured there. Which yes. was <laughs> Great way That's to learn awesome. about a new feature. I'll tell you right now. <laughs> so, yo, um, what the fuck is this? Oh, shit. Tight. Tight. Artist on the rise? Sign me up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> with that said, what are some of the, the products uh, or, or interesting features on some of these platforms that are top of mind for you? And when I say top of mind, that, that could be new, but also just like staples that you also spend a lot of time focusing on. Yeah, I mean, I would still say that the playlist cover phenomenon is alive and well. People love getting playlist covers. So I still talk Mm -hmm. about that with clients a lot. You know, that's on Tidal, that's on Spotify. Um, A bunch of people are still doing that. Uh, Once again, it's still a rarity. It's kind of like a crowning 
the crowning mm-hmm. jewel. Yeah, yeah. And that's why people love it, right? They right. all want like the big thing. So that yeah. that's still definitely there. Um, and people are still sort of eyeing playlist takeovers. So artists taking over playlists and curating them. Uh, for example, Flying Lotus on his last record, I saw did uh, a takeover on Apple and on Spotify, which I thought was a really big deal that he managed to get both done. Um, but, you know, Claro did one on Untitled for Apple and, and things like that uh, are definitely still still happening. Um, and even even Spotify has started doing some during quarantine that are like cooking with Selena Gomez, like literally, like things like that, where like in quarantine, these people are curating these playlists. Uh, and I think that those those are still very coveted and people are still very into them. But, you know, there are still a lot of, you know, artists on the rise kinds of programs. So like you said, uh, YouTube Foundry program uh, is a program where they accept like 20 or 15 developing artists, uh, make a bunch of content with them. So they always announce that. Uh, Spotify is doing their radar program now, uh, which they just launched, which they used to have like Spotify rising and like now it's Spotify radar. You know, it's, it's funny because sometimes they just like rename very yeah, similar yeah, things. Uh, but that's still definitely going on. Uh, Apple definitely, uh, you know, is continuing to do more and they're doing more event-based stuff. They're also still doing Beats 1 stuff and uh, Beats 1 takeovers. So they're having people make shows and stuff like Nicki Minaj or, uh, you know, Time Crisis with Ezra Koenig and stuff like that. Um, you know, I don't find that too many of them are keeping secrets Mm-hmm. Right now, you know, everyone's kind of trying to put all their cards out on the table. Uh, and in a way, I think that that competition is healthy. Like, I'd rather there be more offerings and more things we can pitch for and, right. you know, create a wider scope of opportunity than there only be a few things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, obviously Spotify is moving into the podcasting space. And, you know, I've heard rumblings about there being some artist integrations there. Uh, MXM Tune. Uh, alongside her album cycle did do a playlist or excuse me, a podcast for Spotify. Uh, so they're continuing to sort of expand on that. And I think a lot of these programs that we're going to see and keep seeing really reflect the priorities of each partner. And I think that that's an understated thing that people don't think about. A lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to pitch and oh, I'm going to try to get ads and move on. But each of these platforms are trying to grow and scale in a different way. And all of these programs and where basically they're putting their marketing dollars for the year say something about those programs and or those, and those partners and what we should expect for the future. So I'm very curious to see how they all grow. But, you know, simply put, those are a lot of the things that that we're still currently seeing. Right, right. Um, I want to transition to something that I, I think that you and I both haven't thought about in a while, but a question that I get a, a lot is um, what the experience was like learning this in school. So um, I kind of want to yeah. answer that for the first time on the Music Business Podcast. Um, so I guess just like off the bat, what are some things that you appreciated about learning about the music business in school? How do you think it could change in hindsight? Um, what are some takeaways? And then And then I'll answer it as well. That's a great question. Um, and yeah, I haven't thought about that in a long time. So <laughs> I'm going to have to take a minute. But uh, yeah, so for those who don't know, uh, I went to NYU and I entered school as a uh, music business student in Steinhardt, uh, in our Steinhardt College. Uh, but I actually, I don't know if you know this, but I transferred out of Steinhardt. And I actually graduated from Gallatin, which is our independent study college. And I made my own major. Uh, but I absolutely learned about music industry in school, you know, because I did a year and a half in music business. And I also took a lot uh-huh. of courses related to that. Uh, you know, even when I transferred to Gallatin, you know, I, I think one thing that I think that is kind of overlooked is like, there is a ton of, to- you know, core business curriculum that is, would be very relevant to my life right now that I wish I had learned in a bit more of a traditional sense in school. Right. Um, so I do feel like a lot of traditional marketing classes, a lot of traditional you know, business classes, even uh, finance, which I didn't end up taking because I didn't have to, would have been great to have now um, to understand a bit more, you know, even just those programs and how they work. Um, The other thing about music business, learning it in school, is I do feel that they very strictly sort of adhere to this core curriculum. So Uh. there's a core curriculum, just like any program in college, uh, that they adhere to that they feel is very important. And to me, the music industry is changing every year. 
you know, even this year, obviously with the pandemic, we've had an unprecedented change and shift in what artists are able to do and what kind of business we're able to generate for them. And it's weird to think that people would go back to school and learn the same core curriculum with all of those changes. Um, So I do think that that was one of the frustrations for me. But I do think I learned a lot by be, by having access to professionals, you know, uh, taking a touring class and meeting someone who, you know, is on the road most of the year and being able to, you know, ask them certain questions or see certain stage plots. Uh, and ultimately, I would gain more friends in the industry who would give me that insight. But when I was younger, I didn't necessarily know people who had that information. Um, you know, even being able to, to do it in school, you create this network of people who are interested in the same thing. Right. Right. So for example, uh, you know, my, you know, one of my classmates, Dan Vinas, who's, you know, a friend of mine, uh, is now, you know, an A&R at at Republic. Uh, and we were just happened to be in the same class, you know, or being able to see so many artists thrive from our extended community, like Maggie Rogers and take a day trip and, uh, you know, seeing people write for Selena Gomez and the Chainsmokers. Loud. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, I feel like my network from, you know, and this is really more of a testament in a way to NYU than it is to the specific program, being able to meet this many creative, motivated people is inspiring. And it also informs my understanding and my decision making moving forward. Um, You know, I really enjoyed the community. I think that was my Uh favorite part, you know, me too. you know, just being able you know, we know each other from school and now we're both doing yeah. like very different things, but in the same field and, you know, you and I could hit each other up and ask a question and the other person would answer. So right. I, you know, that is also my favorite thing about the music industry and learning is I love to learn. I think it's like the best. I hate when people pretend yeah. that they know everything. I think that that's like really not intelligent and having peers to ask questions of just to say, you know, like I've never made vinyl before, right? I've never made a physical product. And I asked a friend of mine, I was like, hey, would you teach me how to make vinyl sometime? Like, I'm not going to do it, but I'd like to know. And he was like, yeah, of course. Like, it's no problem. You can come over and we'll, we'll do it one day. You know, to your point, it's like learning from teachers who were experienced and had insight was amazing. And also ultimately creating this community that I could learn from and share with was equally as important to me. Right. Um, so I would say those are the two, the two things. Right. Yeah. My favorite part was definitely just the network that I got from going to the school um, for sure. Just meeting people, doing a bunch of different things. Um, I do think the program could have been a little bit more um, camaraderie based. I like, I have a lot of friends from it, but it was competitive in a weird way, which you can get with like very exclusive programs. But um, overall, I think the network I got from it was great. Um, And the the main thing that I also didn't like was um, that it's a college and it has to adhere to the rules outside of the program. You know, um, I did have to take financial accounting um, my senior year. And that was like one of the best classes I could have taken. Honestly, I had to use it a lot when I got out of school. But just being like and I think this is something that a lot of education systems can do. And just for things like the music business, like we see all these coding schools and things like that and boot camps that put you through this rigorous program. And you know exactly what you need to know in order to get a job after you leave. And I think colleges and education systems could be a little bit more like that, where it's like, what do you actually need to know to thrive um, in the music industry? Let's put together a curriculum just for that. You know, I did, I did calculus. And I was, I was like, why am I doing this? I was, like, this I was is not horrible. good. I was not yeah. good. It was not good. <laughs> yeah, I had to take it past fail. Um, but, you know, I, I do think the the programs that will stand out will be the ones that actually realize what's important to work in the music industry and then focusing a little bit more on that. Um, do I think it was worth it at the end of the day to go to the school? Um, I think there's, I think that's like a big thing that you can kind of ask yourself based on whatever your family's financial situation was before, totally. whether you were planning on moving to New York or LA, that's kind of a broad question. Um, but I would say I did get what I wanted out of the program. And there are some things that I benefited from that I didn't know I was going to benefit from. Like when I applied to internships, uh, people saw NYU and over a 3.0 on my resume. And that's how I got my first internship. I had zero experience. You know, there's some totally. things that obviously were like, oh man, that sucks that I like needed a college education to get that opportunity. Oh, this so this sucks. You know what I mean? But I did benefit from it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So. I mean, the other reason why I, to your point with internships or whatever, 
is I got my first intern, well, it's actually my second internship uh, because of CMJ. And CMJ was hosted at NYU at the time. So we all got badges. And I went to see John Cohen, one of the co-founders of The Fader, speak on a panel. And a little like sophomore me was like so keen. And was like, (laughs) I'm going to go talk to him. And I went <laughs> to talk to him and I had nothing to say, absolutely nothing of value to bring it to him. So I was just like ranting on about how much I like the fader. And then I was like, what do you look for in a good intern? Cause I was like, how do I stop this conversation? Like what's the question I ask? And he was like, email me. I'll get back to you on Monday. And I had an internship with the fader like immediately. That's awesome. Like it was like really an insane thing to have happen. And, and John is still one of my mentors today. Uh, and I really wouldn't have had that experience if I hadn't gone to CMJ and if I hadn't had that access. Um, and to your point, you know, the other thing that was cool about being in New York is I ended up interning at the theater actually for a year and a half, uh, because other people would go away or their semester would end, but I just stayed in New York where I lived. It's where I'm from. It's where I go to school. So I just like, you know, outlasted classes and classes and (laughs) interns because I just like wanted to be there and they wanted to have me. So, you know, it really provided me with the ability to make these long lasting relationships, not just, you know, three month, four month, semester long relationships with professionals. Right. Um, And ultimately meeting John and establishing that relationship with him uh, is the reason I got to intern at Beggars Group uh, at Excel, because, you know, I went to him after a year and a half and was like, I'm a junior in college. I need to go do other things. Uh, And he basically was like, make a list of companies that you're excited about. And we will see who I know and who we can reach out to. And so he reached out to Beggars Group on my behalf. And that's why, you know, they happened to be looking for an intern. And that's why I happened to get to, you know, get hired. So, you know, I I think that, you know, with NYU or music business school or living in New York or being an artist for the record, it's all about making the most of what you have, right? right? Jumping at every opportunity as long as you're excited about it. Right. And, you know, That has been the thing that has led me right, if that's the direction I'm in, in my career is, you know, you have to trust yourself, you have to trust your energy, but also like no one's going to be a better advocate for yourself than you are. So if if you want another internship or you see something else in your future, it's your job to go to your, you know, your boss and talk about it. So, and I think people respect you when you do that. And so I say that to artists all the time too. I'm like, no one's going to be a better advocate for your music than you. So if you're not speaking up or you're not getting people excited about it, or you're not posting on social media or whatever, why should your fans, like why should other people? Right. So right. yeah, that's kind of a philosophy that, that I believe in. Awesome. Awesome. Well, great. This was awesome. Uh, thanks so much for coming out. I think there's a lot of actionable insight that people can take away from this. And I think we had a good conversation. So it'll just be pleasant to listen to anyway. I hope so. I hope I hope everyone yeah. hangs out. And yeah, if anyone's interested in, in Terrorbird or what we do, our website is terrorbird.com. So it's pretty easy to remember. <laughs> Terror like scary and bird like a bird. That's that good SEO. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. Well, thank you, Jen. Yeah, of course. Oh, I thought that was a dope episode, dude. I mean... I'm glad we finally got the, gave the people what they want, man. We finally talked about playlisting. But one thing that I also love to talk to people in the industry about and that, and that Jenny gave a great answer to is when do you think it makes sense to sign to a record label when they're offering services like playlist, play, uh, playlist placement at, at other places that aren't record labels, you know? And she gave a very honest answer to it. It seems like the answers that we get and the answer that Jenny gave us wasn't like, you know, that one is necessarily better than the other. I do think that was at some point a time where everyone was kind of like I you know everyone wants to be I want to be independent forever like label can't have my shit never but it's all about that value exchange right so we get into that a little bit more in this episode um but yeah I thought I thought it was a great time I also think Jenny is just generally good at articulating her thoughts and and people will be able to really pick up on the things that she's on the things that she uh spoke on in a very well way because she logically laid out everything very clearly for people what do you what do you think sam yeah man i I loved it thought it was super valuable super insightful i think you being able to stay on top of uh different products and features that are being released on different social media platforms being first movers there super great way to kind of tap into some 
increase organic distribution and exposure. I think her tips and advice when it comes to using the, the Spotify playlist pitching tool, super valuable. So really grateful to have had her on. Great guest. Uh, and and uh, as always, lo- love y'all for listening. That's, what, that's why we're here. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, you know where you know where we'll be next week. Back in your ears. <laughs> talk, talk then. Peace. <laughs>